Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. I love it when I make mistakes like this, because this is actually the second time that I'm saying this. This introduction was miffed because I didn't hit the record button even after almost 700 podcast episodes. Yes, I still make mistakes. So there you have it. It's deja vu all over again, Randy. It it really is. It really is. But, But no, seriously though, today's guests are very special to me. These are guys that I follow on LinkedIn. I have personally met one. The other I have befriended online and we've become fast friends. Dan Oblinger and Alan Sang are outstanding negotiators And I'll let them tell you a little bit more about their superhero origin story. But today we're going to talk about negotiation. We're going to talk about active listening. And the reason why I wanted to bring Dan on and and Alan on, for that matter, is simply that a couple of years ago, Dan did an SMPS training that I sat in on on active listening. And it wrecked me. It changed my whole world, changed my whole focus about active listening. I thought I was a good listener. I actually sucked. And Dan made it plain and clear. He helped me understand the importance of being better than chickens. He extolled the virtues of the campfire. He helped me to understand that I need to basically ask more questions and listen more often. And so I really, really appreciate his experience and background, but I'll let these guys tell their own story. So without further ado, Dan and Alan, how are you guys doing? Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast. It's good to be here. We're blessed. Couldn't be better. Thanks, Randy. Absolutely. So the way we always start off this podcast is I really want to get your superhero origin story. So I know you guys like to tell each other's stories. So Dan, why don't you go first and tell me a little bit about your brother, Alan? Uh, Alan is, he's an enigma wrapped up in a conundrum. (laughs) He was born in Hong Kong. He grew up in Ghana, in Africa. And then somehow he made it to the United States, slipped through border security, and (laughs) has been here for many years now. If he can't place his accent, good. None of us can. But he's got six beautiful children and a wife who's amazing. He doesn't deserve her. He knows it. And he, <laughs> he's a negotiator, which is crazy because people don't think that's a profession. But 
if, because I know Alan, I know this is true. You can be a professional negotiator by trade. He learned at the feet of Jim Camp. And for many of your listeners, Randy, that won't, that name may not mean much because he's not, he's not a flashy guy. He didn't set out to make, you know, himself into a brand, but Jim Camp's widely regarded as one of the toughest negotiators in the, on the private sector side. And Alan learned that he was a tough taskmaster, but Alan learned and, and added his own kind heart to that process, I think. Alan's going to kill me for all this. Uh, <laughs> he has a very close personal relationship with Gary Nesner, which is, he's basically one of the OGs, one of the godfathers of hostage negotiations. So Alan has a nice blend. He has a good background in negotiations all around. And for uh, over 13 years, he has served corporate clients. And I am proud to call him my friend and partner. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Alan, you, I'm going to tee you up on It's on you to let us know about Dan. It's always good to go second because yeah. <laughs> you, get to, you get to plot and uh, plot a revenge. Well, Dan is uh, married to wonderful lady Miley, and they also have six kids. And a lot of our values, uh, we met and we got along so well because Dan and I have a lot of principles and values that overlap. And so we went on this venture together to work together. Dan lives in the, in the plains in the Midwest. In Kansas, he likes chasing after buffaloes. Occasionally, when I talk to him, he is about to chase after bad guys in the evening. And then by day, he serves the private sector and work with companies, design and, and construction companies. And I enjoy working with him, helping clients solve their difficult negotiation problems. Yeah, no. And it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, I re- actually, I don't know. I thought, Dan, I had shortchanged you. I thought you had five kids, but you have six and six. <laughs> six yeah. I mean, that's, a, getting, that's a you, gang you turn around and there's another kid, you know, rolling out somewhere. It's, like, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. 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 No, no. We, and we've wanted to have that many kids. We stopped at three. So we're, we're hanging in there. So, but you guys are, I certainly uh, applaud both of you for the fact that you are outstanding dads and husbands and outstanding business people. And I, I can say that specifically from the business side of things is because I've had a chance to witness the, your growth just in this short season that we've been through the pandemic, you guys started the negotiation tribe Q&A and the negotiation tribe in general, where you really just basically collaborated with a, a bunch of people online and shared what your knowledge and skill set was. And out of that was born this whole new organization, Oblinger and Sang. And I think that's kind of cool that things just happen like that, right? And, you know, everybody's talking about the pandemic pivot, right? Everybody's making a move in this season. I've even done it. I've even gone all in on podcasting because it's actually something that I enjoy doing. But I mean, you guys have taken this whole idea of negotiation and creating more awareness around it, talking about active listening and all the things that impact negotiation and have packaged it up nicely. And I would love for you just to talk about this whole negotiation tribe and this movement that you guys are spearheading and what that has meant for both of you. I'll start and then I'll, I'll pass the baton. For us, the word that we like to use, like when we talk about it offline, like, you know, with each, just each other privately, is it's a community because that, that there's, that's a rich word. There's a lot involved in that. It means that we're not in, necessarily in control. We're not, we certainly can't control what's now over 500 people online who are all, by the way, interested in negotiations. And we have, we definitely have some practitioners in that group all the way down to, to some design professionals that are like, look, I'm tired of getting you know my pants handed to me on scope and fee negotiations or on supplementals with you know the Department of Transportation. There's got to be a better way. 
right? And they start with, you know, what we would probably say is next to nothing in terms of knowledge and skill, just, you know, just whatever natural talent they had at negotiations. And then all the way up to the people with decades of experience, both in police negotiations, some of them, and then others in, in the private sector in sales and procurement. So it's a really rich community. You have elders, you know, you have people with lots and lots of deep knowledge and, and ability. And then you have, you have the youngins, right? Of varying age who are really just, they are great students. Like they are hungry. And so it's, it's fun. And yeah, it largely was a pivot. It largely, that I would say not so much, it didn't so much motivate us to start, but it definitely fueled the growth. There were a lot of people hungry to be able to develop themselves and they were in isolation and all they had was the internet and there aren't a lot of communities on the internet. There's just a lot of noise. There's a lot of, I guess, data. There's information, <laughs> but not a lot of community. Yeah. So I think that's why it's been very successful because it, it fills a need that all human beings have. And if your need for community intersects with a strong desire to be a better negotiator, you're a pretty good fit for the negotiation tribe. Alan, what do I miss? I don't really have much to, to add to that. You're, you're pretty much spot on. I think, I think during, during the COVID, I feel like Dan and I would have gone in this direction with or without the COVID. Because prior to COVID, we already connected and we, we talked about doing some work together. I've been doing remote coaching for at least the last 13 years. So nothing of mine really changed that much. I did have some local clients that I met in person and, and now we just meet on, on Zoom. So, and all my clients are in, like in Australia, Europe, Asia, like in Japan, Hong Kong. So it's always on Zoom anyway. It's been on Zoom for over a decade. Regarding the, the negotiation tribe, we don't have a lot of control over that. It's just a community. And I think as humans, we, we yearn, is that the word? We yearn to be connected to a group of people with, who have uh, similar values as we do. And the Negotiation Tribe's mission is to help people become better negotiators and to build strong agreements with people they love and they care for. And sometimes that may include businesses and suppliers and to avoid making unnecessary compromise because with that comes a lot of remorse and regret and self-loathing and just a lot of pain. And, and so I think the community was to help people build stronger communities, their own little micro communities. It could be their home. It could be their work. It could be with the business counterparts. And so the one word is just, um, just a, a strong community. Yeah. I love, I love the word community. I love the word tribe too. I mean, Seth Godin talks about finding their, your tribe of a thousand. So you're at 500. So we got to get yeah, you we're halfway there. more. Yeah. Yeah, you're halfway there for sure. So, and you know, I think that the thing that really stood out to me with the whole negotiation tribe is that you know, everybody's like literally out trying to help each other. If problems come up or people have a challenge, they bring it to the tribe, they share it. And you guys speak up, but then other people speak up too. I know I've shared some things and insight mm -hmm. and other people like Kwame, my buddy Kwame, a Christian mm -hmm. who is uh, an outstanding attorney and does a lot of negotiation and is a mutual friend of ours. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people that are part of this group. And I actually would encourage anybody listening to this podcast as a design professional, if you want to start to just be, become better at negotiation or at least kind of understand what real negotiation is and not this whole back and forth of, you know, you try to edge out somebody else and get more than what they have, then I think the negotiation tribe is for you. But I want to jump, I want to talk a little bit, Dan and Alan, about this whole idea. And this is just a question that I actually have for you right now. What comes first? 
does active listening come before negotiation or does negotiation come before active listening? And I, I think it's, I think it's the, the former, but you tell me. Can I go first and then I'll pass the ball back to you, Dan? Well, that depends on how we define negotiation. Some people look at negotiation as we only negotiate when what we're trying to do fails, right? So I've heard some salespeople go, yeah, we only negotiate when sales fail. Well, that is a very small or thin slice of looking at negotiation. It's not wrong. It's just not a complete picture. Negotiation to us is the nonviolent form of, uh, of communication that brings about agreement between two or more parties with each party having the power of consent, right? And so once you look at that, it's, it's the process. And for us, that includes the preparation. That includes the research. That includes the internal decision to want to negotiate with the other party. If I do not want to negotiate with the other party, there is no negotiation. And I have to make that decision. In a negotiation, there's two things we want to do. It's a decision-based. I need to make good decisions, and then I want to influence the decision of my counterpart. The first step is I need to make a decision. What do I, what I need to do in the next step? And it could be, I do not want to negotiate with Dan, and therefore, there is no negotiation. I already made the decision. In that case, when we look at it that way, the negotiation starts before we even engage tactically with the other party. And then once we engage tactically, then active listening comes into play. That's how I look at it. Dan may look at it differently. Dan? I think that the distinction between active listening and negotiation as activities is very blurry. Active listening is not necessarily about helping other people make decisions at all. It's about strengthening the relationship. But that also is a, a good goal in negotiations. Listening is about gaining knowledge about the other person and their situation. That is a core aspect of negotiations. But active listening would resist any effort to problem solve. You know, active listening doesn't try to solve any problems. It just tries to uh, strengthen relationships, exchange information, calm emotions, establish a, a sense of safety. Those are all critical things for a great negotiator to do. And so if they're active listening, they are, they are negotiating. But negotiation is definitely distinct from active listening because we go beyond that and we start crafting agreements. And we may insist that people make some decisions. In active listening, we, we probably won't push anybody to make any decisions. So what's interesting is you can active listen. And if all you're doing is just, you know, developing rapport, just strengthening a relationship for something in the future, then maybe that's not a negotiation. It's awfully hard, though, to be actively listening in a professional setting and not be also negotiating because you probably are listening with a purpose. And the purpose is probably so that you can make a better decision and that hopefully they'll make a better decision that's going to help you out, too. Sometimes the decision we make is I'm not going to do business with this person or this entity, or I'm just not going to do business with in this situation, this deal. We're not going to do this deal. That's a negotiation. When I use active listening as a police negotiator, it's a negotiation. It's always a negotiation because I, the only reason I'm involved is that there's danger, there's violence, you know, there's aggression, and we're going to help them make a better decision, right? So, so that's where I say the lines are very, very blurry. And I would say in almost every case, when your listeners are trying to actively listen with somebody, they do have a purpose to it. They want somebody to make an, a decision that they can't control, that there has to be mutual consent. And therefore, your active listening is a part of the negotiation. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I mean, when you put it that way, I definitely start thinking about how, you know, the role that active listening plays, specifically for design professionals, right? Because this is a podcast for design professionals. And, and I think about, you know, there's so many moving parts. And for design firm leaders or soon-to-be leaders or assistant project mm -hmm. managers and people like that, 
you have to be an active listener in order to, you know, bring people internally on your team up in line with what you're trying to do. And then at the same point, you've got to be a strong, active listener when interacting with the client. Otherwise, you won't understand exactly what they need. So even before the negotiation comes up, there's that active listening piece of you just having an understanding of what the client wants and needs before you either say yes or no to them with regard to offering them your services. So I do have one thought because you're almost 100% right. I just want to correct one thing that you're not wrong about, but I want to open your audience's mind a little bit. This is one of the number, this is like one of the top challenges I face when I work with specifically design professionals who are going to want to work on their negotiations. And this is both like executives, but also teams like companies, because I work with companies about their culture and building out programs where they negotiate across the board better. The negotiation starts way sooner than you think. If you're doing discovery with a client, like if you're listening to them, then the negotiation's already begun because they're making judgments about your abilities as a provider of professional services already. You could lose the negotiation in how you ask the questions trying to scope out a project. If you think the negotiation begins only when you start talking about fee, then you're falling into what we call the most dangerous kind of negotiation is the one you don't realize you're in. That's that. So we really, we work with the people that anytime you're touching a client, you're negotiating with them because you're going to ask them later on to make a decision and their decision will be driven by their vision of you professionally. So every, and everything we do, every proposal we send, every text message, every phone call, every in-person or Zoom meeting, they're forming judgments about you and you are reflecting your corporate culture. So, you know, I might want to do business with Randy and therefore everyone that Randy's representing, there's a little bit of a halo effect. So yeah, we really encourage people. Listening is so important in negotiations. And recognize if you're listening to a client, you're negotiating with them because they're going to start to make decisions about value. Yeah. And, and as I'm glad you brought up scope and fee. And those are some of the issues. Whenever I've done project management trainings for Zui groups, particularly, that's one of the biggest challenges that comes up is that clients complain about their inability to, to deal with the, the scope creep that comes up mm. invariably in a lot of projects. It's not every project, but in a lot of projects, project managers, assistant project managers complain about the factor of scope creep and how that impacts their ability to serve their client uh, properly. So I'd love for you just to expand upon that a little bit. Well, we struggle to calculate scope creep. We oftentimes do the work begrudgingly, <laughs> and, but we don't track how much money we lost in terms of time and effort and opportunity cost because we're doing work for free. And the other thing we don't calculate with scope creep is the, the tarnish or the harm to our professional image to that client because we are working for free. Professionals don't work for free. So I'll give you an example. So if somebody came back to you and, and they said, well, we, we need this work done. And you look at it and you say, yeah, this work is important to successfully complete this project now that we know, right? But it was unforeseen. Something else changed. It's not in the original contract for scope. Therefore, there's no fee assigned to it currently. Number one thing I hear from project managers and PEs that I work with, they're like, well, I'm just going to do it to keep them happy. And Alan, I want you to talk about the dynamic of when people come to us and ask us to do something and we decide we're not going to charge them the potential for dissatisfaction when we compromise. Well, this is from uh, decades of experience and we talk about it. It's not that Dan and I don't have a heart. It's just that we understand the decision process and human dynamics of when people ask for something that is free, right? Along with stuff that's free is they do not value it. The person who wants it free at the time will say, of course, I value it. But once they have it and the satisfaction of the job done, then the value goes down dramatically. So I'll go, I'm going to actually take a step back and talk about why some of these scope creep 
happens and and there's a lot of uh, remorse and bitterness and and resentment that happens along with it because I actually 30 years ago I was in a design field. I was in architecture and, and interior design and then got a got accepted in Virginia Tech for my masters in industrial design. They started building furniture. I love custom furniture and and so I see a lot of the mistakes that designers make which is they fail to build expectation. This is like we're talking about expectation management. We're talking about the mindset that drives compromise, which is a lot of designers have bought into people do business with us because they like and trust us. In a way, yes. But the niceness comes into play. And because they want to be liked so much, when there is a small scope creep, they just go, well, I want to keep this customer happy. Next minute, it creeps, literally it creeps, and the door of compromise opens an inch at a time. Before you realize it's wide open and uh, there's a lot of resentment that happens, it reach a point where they say, I'm working for nothing. My team is working for nothing and we're bleeding. We're doing so much work and it's now we've been doing work for them for a year and I can't go back and charge them for this because they're going to say, you've been doing it for free for a year. Why charge me now? Right? And so they, they regret going back or not going back and charging them and they cannot afford to keep doing it. And I have seen design firms making $2.5 million a year, small firm, but they're $800,000 in debt. The line of credit have maxed out because scope creep. So we had to go in and renegotiate contract with existing uh, client doing the same work with the same team and went from uh, $2.5 million to $25 million in a three-year contract. That is about $8.33 million a year doing the same work. Initially, my client says, we need to increase our rates, but I think if we increase it by 10%, they're going to leave us. We went to more than 300% rate increase after a a good strategy session. So just to say, if you're a design firm and you're losing money, you're not alone. It's just that you have a good heart and you want to help your clients and you want to keep good clients and you want to be nice, you want to be liked, and that has come to undermine your success. You know, the other thing that happens, which is even worse, is that when they come and they ask you to do work that's out of scope. Sometimes they know it's out of scope. And so that and that's what Alan's talking about. Now they're going to push you and they're going to keep pushing you because that's their mission, right? Sometimes they don't know if it's out of scope or not and how you react tells them whether it's in scope or not. But there are some people that come and they really do believe it's within the original scope and you're going to agree to do it for free because you want to make them happy and this starts creating doubt. It starts creating animosity. And, the, and this is totally intu- this is counterintuitive. And I work with PMs all the time in negotiation workshopping. And they're like, we can't do that. They'll be pissed off. And I'll say, no. When you do that, sometimes they get pissed off because they start to wonder, how much did they pad that original fee that they're willing to do all this work for free happily? Oh, yeah, we'd love to do that work to keep you happy, right? And they're like, I feel like I'm being taken for a ride. And that they will have internal discussions about how far they need to push you to discover your pain point in fee because you're so far ahead. When in, in fact, you were doing your normal 3 to 5% fee and you're just afraid to negotiate. And it, so the opposite effect happens of what you intended. You wanted to make them happy, but now you've made them suspicious. And this doesn't make a lot of sense until like, like my stepbrother Alan said, until you begin to study human dynamics and human decision making and emotions because all decisions are emotional. Yeah, man. Yeah, you're right. I want to. I want to continue and pull on that thread. Pull it. When we work, we are going to screw up. It's just a matter of life. 
just like when you just started yeah. today, you, just, oh, you have done oh, this like seven hundred times. You're going to make mistakes, right? And we still forgot to to record. I have made mistakes when I have interviewed people for, on on behalf of my client, and they say, "Yeah, I've never made a mistake." And when we ask them, "What is the, one of the biggest mistake you've made?" and and they 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 pause and they go, "Never made a mistake." Immediately, we don't hire that person. We got some issues with this. <laughs> yeah. Right. So to go back, it's like the the mistakes that people make is they want to be liked. This is the undermine. This is the mindset. So when when we talk about compromise, it starts with what's happening in our mind. This erroneous idea that we need to be liked, and so the the cut the counterpart exploits that, Randy. So when we screw up, they look for it. They look for it, and they get upset. When they play upset, they're gonna play it up. They're gonna be super upset, and then they go, "What are you gonna do for us? What are you willing to do for us? Would you do this project for free to keep us happy?" Guess what? A lot of people will do. Sure. And once you put that monkey on your back, you can't get him off. It's like you did. La- you did it free last time. I don't understand what's going on. No, but you were upset last time, and then all they have to do is say what. I'm still upset. I'm still upset. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. I've heard people like Mark Zweig talk about, you know, the challenges that design firm leaders struggle with is that they they want they want to be nice guys and they want to be liked. I mean, you say that, right? And then we start talking about all the other service industries like attorneys. I guess attorneys don't want to be liked because if they don't get paid, they don't do their work. <laughs> and mm. so so Kwame would tell you that almost all lawyers fall into the same problem really there's a thin slice of them that litigate and they love the confrontation and they love the aggression and they they, they see themselves as great negotiators for that reason mm-hmm. but the vast majority of attorneys don't litigate they make compromise they make they come to deals even civil and criminal attorneys they're all about cutting a great plea bargain right or if they're in civil work coming to an agreement outside of the court if everyone took everything to court the court system would would collapse and fail you know so we actually Alan and I have run into many lawyers who know that they need to work on their negotiation skills because it's not something that's really taught in law school, mm-hmm. right? Uh, legal back and forth is not the same thing as value-based negotiations. So uh, there are many attorneys that are great negotiators, but the vast majority of them are no different than the design professionals that I work with or the enterprise sales and procurement specialists and entrepreneurs and startup CEOs that Alan tends to work with. Yeah. So I guess really, if you just scratch below the surface, you'll find it in almost every industry. For the every industry, part. even police crisis negotiators in my industry, you know, my first industry, right? There are many that really struggle with with business negotiations. They, it's a totally different dynamic. Some of the core skills are are exactly the same, but dealing with terms and fees and scope that's a, that's a, a new language that we would have to learn. And uh, coming from the public sector, sometimes we're not great about value. You know, it's interesting. We get indoctrinated that the check comes every two weeks and it's the same no matter what we do, right? Yeah. So it's it's a challenge. It's interesting you say that because there actually have been several well-known hostage negotiators that have come out and written, quote unquote, business books around this whole idea of negotiation, Chris Voss being one of them. And, you know, I I never really thought about the fact that 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 hostage negotiators can struggle just as as easily as anybody else in this area of negotiation maybe in different areas, right? If saving a life, you might be really well equipped to do it, but there might be challenges when it flips over to some other dynamic or some other type of exchange. Yeah. I mean, after Voss, who else is there? That's where, I mean, there's, there's very few people who make that crossover and there are, there are others. I'm, there, there's a handful. Yeah. 
So that just goes to show just because some of the skills are the same, there's still this, there's a different culture and language and, and there's a different dynamic in business. And that's, that's good. You could take some really good business negotiators and salespeople and you could put them in my world, my first world, and they would quit. They would quit because it's not, there's not, I can't, I can't buy my way out of this, right? I can't compromise. That's right. There is no compromise. Yeah. Which a lot of sales folks who think they're negotiating, they're actually just compromising and giving away cost. And you can't do that with a hostage or even in a crisis. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. And, and a lot of people don't know this about me, but in, in a former life, I am an ordained pastor. And um, there are some skill sets that you learn as a pastor that I never had to exercise before this. And, and I know you can appreciate this, Dan, but, um, you know, it's just it's it's like, wow, you know, there are times when I do put on that hat where I learned how to, you know, be, I think, more sympathetic to another individual situation, even way more than an average person would be. And that has informed how I have interacted with and negotiated and worked with those people. So, yep. um, and maybe I just have a little bit more patience for it because of that. So, well, you're a good so, dad, so you're patient. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow, it seems like I'm in, in a room of uh, recovering uh, pastors and priests here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. For those right. of you that didn't have that back. <laughs> oh, man, I love that. I love yeah, that. Yeah, so it makes him the heathen pagan. So, even though he's a better Christian than I am, then <laughs> trying to fix me. Yeah, he's trying to he's trying yeah. to repair me. That's funny. That's I funny. Repair my soul. So, listen. You know, before we wind up, I did want to ask you guys: What are you? I mean, outside of what you've already mentioned and some of the challenges that we we struggle with, we being those that are in the design industry, working you know on a regular basis. What are some of the other things that you've noticed about the struggles of the design leader, design firm worker, or somebody that, that is in the design industry? What are some of the, the normal challenges that you see that can be easily overcome with just a little bit of modification to behavior, learning some new skills? One of the things that I said, like I said earlier uh, before at the beginning of this podcast, Dan, is that I've referred everybody to two of your books, Life or Death Listening and The 28 Laws of Listening just as a starting point, right? Because a lot of times people don't understand just some of the listening sins or active listening sins that people struggle with versus what what is a what is a proper active listener look like? And I'd be curious to know, what is the, the refrain that you see over and over again as you either interact with or go into these firms, the biggest struggle that design firms, people that work in design firms deal with when it comes to these areas of negotiation and active listening outside of the whole scope creep issue? So I always, I start with something that I think everybody struggles with and is familiar with, and it's, it's, it's in their wheelhouse, and that is business development. And I think I, this is, I've been serving AEC clients for over a decade, okay? Specifically in both active listening and in negotiation. And consistently what I see is that, especially professional engineers and architects, they have an awkward relationship with the business development mission for their organizations, for their firms. And it's awkward, I think, because some of the personality traits and the technical background and the temperament and the professional dedication that make people great designers don't really translate well to sales and development. And so what do we see happen in firms? Oh, so-and-so is pretty good at it. So they slide into that role. And half the time, they're still designing, but they're also doing business development. The other model I see commonly is if you're a project manager, you're expected to go hunt down your own work, right? And develop that. 
And then as they get bigger, every once in a while, they'll actually go and hire somebody from the business development world. Like they'll, they'll bring in somebody, usually a good looking person, <laughs> and they don't necessarily have professional background, but they're great at sales and business development. And so now they've created a situation in their culture where that person has to learn to translate and be able to speak to the, the members of their team who are professional designers, right? No matter how you do it, there's pros and cons. So what I've really, you know, when I work with executives, I say, hey, what, what if everybody that had to do business development, everybody that was in a natural place, they're already touching clients, your PMs, right? People that you've assigned to BD, right? Or just any professional, like somebody in every market, right, that you're in, somebody in every design discipline that you guys sell. What if there were a couple people that just had been trained properly to be negotiators? They don't have to have a lot of natural talent, but they're told this is what negotiation is. These are the best practices. This is the company's way of doing business development in terms of negotiation. And we begin to see that negotiations are certainly winning new work, but it's also managing scope creep, project delivery, internal negotiations about strategy and talent management. And what if these people were a resource for the whole company? And with the secret intention, the insidious intention of that, they're going to start affecting all the people around them in the culture, right? People will start saying, I don't have to say yes. Like if every design professional in your firm knew how to tell people no confidently and compassionately, what would that look like? Because here's a freebie. Here's how you tell people no. Unfortunately, no. And that's it. You don't have to explain a no. Unfortunately, I can't do that. Unfortunately, we can't do that, right? That's it. And they're like, we can tell people that? I'm like, you, sometimes you need to tell people that or you'll be in the situation of that client that Alan told us about. So that's it. That negotiation is a feature of your culture. And if it's not there, that's a feature of your culture. And it, is, it starts with a little bit of knowledge, but a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And you really must have important uh, roles in your company filled with people that are habitually good negotiators. And that might scare the crap out of them right now. But with a little bit of training and a little bit of coaching, I've seen design professionals who were scared to death of negotiating turn into ice cold value protectors. It's pretty awesome. And you know what? They have stronger relationships with their clients. It's crazy. That's true. Yeah. So I guess... Alan, what would you you add to that? I know I missed a few things. Common mistakes that CEOs make. Common mistakes that CEOs make. So I'm going to have to back up a little bit. Look, it's easy for people to listen to this and think, uh, look, Dan and Alan uh, are gurus or experts in negotiation. A lot of people claim that, and it's scary for me, actually. I, I consider myself... And I'm sure Dan does as well, that we're just students of communication and uh, helping people building strong agreements. When it comes to design and construction, right, usually you go to four to five years of school. And when you come out, you still have to intern or do some work and build your and hone your, your develop and hone your trade craft to a point where now you have a brand, you do really well. You have this design and you have a style to it. It's the same with human interaction. Dan has his style. I have my style, but we follow certain principles of negotiation that we will not deviate from, and that keeps us safe. So in terms of design professionals, the mistake is reading a book, even listening to a podcast. And I'm sorry, Randy, I know I'm, I'm going to maybe undercut you, man. <laughs> I'm gonna undercut you. And it's going to actually even seem self-serving at this point. In order to improve, it's very much like how they develop their design profession. You have to learn, get acquire some information, and then you have to get competent at that and develop the skills and the habits so that when you are under pressure with a client that is unhappy, 
how do you de-escalate and build strong agreements in spite of that difference and resolve conflicts and disputes? These are the skills that a lot of design professionals do not have. And I've been with them. Sometimes they're like, "If my brand is strong enough, I'm the doctor." They ask me what, and I'm gonna design, and they're gonna like it, and they're gonna take it or leave it. It is my way or the highway. If my brand is strong enough, I can intimidate them into embracing my idea, only to have remorse or buyer's remorse on the buyer side, and they find a way to sue the designer because they're not happy with how they have just basically. Rammed it down their throat. This is what it is. Take it or leave it. Right. So, how do you build strong agreements? Is to acquire these human interaction skills on top of the design skills, so that they can build long-term agreements that doesn't fall apart. This is what CEOs need to keep in mind. Do their team have everything and all the tools they need to help their team members build strong agreements with their clients? That's a question they have to ask for themselves. Yeah, and that is, uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> I don't think that there's enough introspection being done in that way for people to figure that out.、Uh, you know, they typically, you know, like with anything, we we want to hire people to come in and and help us solve our problems. So, I mean, that's what keeps you guys in business. That's keep, keeps me in business. So keeps the lights on here at Oblinger Castle. It, it definitely,、yeah. does. it sure it does. does. But you know. Alan and I. This is where why we're partners is we both always see ourselves as working ourselves out of work、mm-hmm. because if we're not improving your culture where you can start self rescuing, then the value proposition for us seems thin. So we work with people recognizing that they're very influential pieces of a of a culture and that they will influence those around them. So do we work with companies? Absolutely, and I can build you an entire program if that's what you want and you're willing to make hard decisions and do hard、right. work. Alan and I do that together. We will also work with executives who are in a culture that's not ready, and they need a pathfinder. We'll prepare the pathfinder, and we'll teach them how to coach, and then they'll go back and we'll support them too as they try to work on their culture. So there's so many different ways to start building negotiations in your firm. There's not a lot of barriers that are deal breakers. If you decide, hey, we're consultants, right? We're consulting engineers, and our engineering is flawless, but we want to work. We might want to put a little investment in our consulting. That's what this is about. Consult. That's what consultants are. We help people make better decisions, and we also we need to make good decisions for ourselves so that we're not at risk. So that's it. Yeah, man, that's it right there. That's a mic drop right there. I agree with that one hundred percent. So if people want to connect with you guys and、uh, learn a little bit more about Oblinger and Sang,、uh, what's the best way for them to do that? I'll start with、uh, free and a little bit of knowledge, which remember is dangerous. LinkedIn for me and Alan is the primary way we're connecting with people in the tribe. For now, that could always change, but for now, you can get on LinkedIn, connect to us. You can join the tribe. The tribe is free. The community is free. And if you want to go to some free Q and A and see some hilarious Photoshop memes on LinkedIn, and then also a little bit of knowledge here and there, and a little bit of demonstration of skill here and there, that's all free. Just connect to us, join the tribe. You can connect to us and message us. Say, "Hey, heard you on Randy's podcast. Give a shout out to Mr. Wilburn." And then ask for a, an invitation to the calendar invites, and you'll be set. That's free. Now, if you're out there and you're on, you're a decisive person. You already know what you want, and you know you need help with your culture. That ain't free because we're professionals, so we don't work for free. And because there's no value proposition, if it's free, you won't value it. So, Alan, give him some thoughts on maybe some options if they want to explore the opportunities to work with cultures and executives. I like to give the easy path. 
Easy Path is just text N Tribe N T R I B E to eight five five two zero two four three zero seven, and you get into notifications for our workshops, for our free Q and As, and again that is N Tribe for Negotiation Tribe. Just text N Tribe to eight five five two zero two four three zero seven. Then the second、uh, hardest way is just send Dan and me an email and just say, "Look, I want to have a free discovery call to see whether you guys can help us." And it says Dan is D A N and mine is Alan A L L A N A L L A N at oblingersang dot com. And that's O B L I N G E R T S A N G dot com. dot com. Man, I know you guys were worried whether that was that domain was going to be available, right? <laughs> You know what? It wasn't available. It wasn't available. Alan had to negotiate to you, get it back. From are you、somebody. serious? <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious! So, but we didn't have to pay for it. So evidently, they're not good negotiators. Whoever、How、that was that? in Ukraine or Estonia or whatever. <laughs> that's funny. I love that. Well, man, we will be sure to put、uh, all this in the show notes so people know how to reach out to to both you, Dan and Alan. And I can't, from the bottom of my heart, and from everyone here at that Zwei Group and the Zwei Letter. We really appreciate you guys coming on and sharing your wisdom and expertise because this is a real issue. And I think the sooner that design firms get a handle on this, everything becomes better. Internal relationships become better, and certainly external ones with the clients. And no, no longer is it more of an adversarial role that you're taking, but you're taking one of a true relational role with your clients, where you know you're there to solve their problems, which you are anyway, but you just don't. You know, you are able to avoid some of the challenges that historically design firms have run into, especially when dealing with with their clients. So, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. You're、It's、very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. Another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. You can learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry by visiting thezweigletter.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter. And have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today for more info about Zwei Group's advisory services or any Zwei Group publications. Visit zweiggroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zwei Letter podcast wherever you listen to it, and please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we will see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry, and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com/slash/subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration, in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.